0: Bank of America's got a brand new fancy product, and you're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This over here is David Hansen. David, I don't have a bit of social pop culture trivia for Why not? you today. What, what have you been watching?
1: <sighs> Nothing.
0: You know, we've got the, the NCAA playoffs are coming up. Are you still feeling good about your Duke pick?
1: I felt better, but... I felt better. They, I haven't, they've got I, a star. You can win with a star.
0: I, I haven't even been... I haven't been watching anything. But you're what, be what are gone. the rankings
1: looking like? You're going to yeah. be gone for March Madness really anyway, right?
0: Well, not all of it. Just the very beginning. Just enough that I can't put in a bracket.
1: I, I don't even know who's number one, actually, right now. Wichita State, maybe? Yes. Is that... Really? They're undefeated. Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: Good for them. Yes. All right, let's get on to the first headline. The first headline is, of course, Bank of America seeks a lift from flat fee checking... It's a new product from Bank of America. There's been so much talk in recent years, so much, so much hand-wringing over overdraft fees, over lower-income customers, and how they're treated at banks. Bank of America has been on the front of the firing line when it comes to that. This is a new product that it's $4.95 per month. You don't get a checkbook. It's just online. There's a debit card. No overdrafts. Yep. So basically, if you zero out your account, you try to use that debit card, doesn't work. Exactly. So this is, this is viewed as a way for, A, Bank of America not to lose money on, on lower-deposit, lower-income customers, and, B, for those customers to have a product that they could be at a bank, a big bank like Bank of America, and not have to worry about massive overdraft fees. Um, what do win-win? You
1: do you think it's a win-win? I think so. I, it I, seems like it would be. It seems like a better product than the other options. The headline says that they get a lift from this, and... I don't think yeah, that's yeah, going to no, be the yeah, big yeah, driver. Sure. They're not going to. I think they've done this more so to discourage customers, perhaps. I know they're not going to come out and say that that they don't want people with low balances to be customers, but that's really what they want. They're losing money on people with low balances, so by charging them, it maybe defer or deters them from even becoming Bank of America customers here. So I think this is more of an expense kind of investment here rather than trying to really drive revenue. Because you go back to the debit fee fiasco from 2011, where they proposed to have a $5 fee if you use your debit card. That was not on all Bank of America customers. That was on a very, very, very Mm -hmm. small percentage of customers. But the way they presented it, it blew up in in the media. So they weren't trying to make a lot of money off of it. They were just trying to
0: not lose money on certain customers. maybe it does maybe it does defer customers either way i don't think this is a way for bank of america to make a whole lot of additional no. money i think if anything the lift would just come through maybe reputational improvement over time possibly that that people are no longer complaining
1: about horrible and i think there worries. has been i mean if they would have done this at the same time they did the debit card
0: it been, in, it instead of the
1: debit card. In, it still would have been just as bad. Maybe not as bad as the debit card would You think so? I, I think it's a
0: different product. And and, and they, they can pitch it as there's no more overdrafts. You don't have
1: to worry about it over overdrafts. It is a different product. But even back in 2011, the mood around banks and Bank of America was really bad. So we ha- there has been improvement over the last two and a half years. Or I else. don't know.
0: I I just I, I think the difference between saying if you use your debit card, we're going to charge you versus yeah, it's this not is a bad. banking product that costs $5 and you can't overdraft on it.
1: I think they're making improvements. It's just, it's just a little
0: bit out of a time. So, what know. else do you want?
1: I don't want anything else. All right, I want second the second headline. headline.
0: You want the second headline. That's what I want. That's what the people. want.
1: A chilling forecast for bank profits. Got a picture of Jamie Dimon there, and he going looks, back he to looks upset. He looks mad. He, he looks maybe, maybe sad. He actually could look sad. He does look a little sad. So this is going back to fixed income trading. Or Jamie once again, fixed income trading is not going anywhere at the banks. This is fifth straight quarter. Fixed income trading is going to be down. A far cry from the heydays of a couple of years ago. Um, now, my question is, they're saying trading volume is low. Nobody wants to be buying bonds right now. No one wants to be caught with bonds when interest rates go up and everyone loses their value.
0: It's funny if you actually think about it, like somebody walking down the street and somebody accosting. they like, you have bonds. No, no, I don't, nobody,
1: I don't. Nobody wants to be caught with bonds. I'd no them in your pocket. Corporate treasurers don't want to walk into the office and say, hey, Sorry, we lost a lot on the bonds that we bought. So my question is, how can everyone be saying that bonds are a bad investment and be right? Because in the past, when we see you and everyone says something, it ultimately turns out to be probably not that case. Well... What am I missing here? I, I think part of it
0: would be that if you... it's. Everybody can say something, but unless they're acting on it, you don't see that actually play out in the market. So if you look at the the yields on bonds, they're still very, very, very low. Yeah. If indeed nobody, there was no demand for bonds. If there's no demand for high uh, high grade corporate bonds. If there's no demand for for U.S. government bonds, you'd see. Granted, the, the Fed is still in there buying them. But that, that can't account for that much of the market to keep... Mm-hmm. The Fed just can't keep rates that low by itself. Yeah. If the demand wasn't there at all, you'd see rates continue to rise until demand balanced out. I mean, what you have in any kind of market, the buyers and sellers balance out. And that's where you get that, the equilibrium where we stand today. So there, there are people buying bonds. There are investors buying bonds. I think it's just at the, maybe the activity level... Around it. Mm-hmm. The, and, and actually, it makes a lot of sense when you think about the levels of uncertainty that we saw in the market over the past few years versus the. I mean, there's, there's more of a complacency in the market right yeah. now. And it's that volume, it's, it's the people. That's how the banks
1: make their exactly. money. Not, exactly. Not so much what the yields are, more so whether people are trading in and out. It's
0: not so much what the yields are, it's not so much the level of confidence that, that a given group has in, in a certain security. It's the activity level. And so low volatility, I mean, we're probably going to see something similar with equity trading results at at banks as well, because that's also a volume-driven business. The Trading in general is a volume-driven business. So when we hear about, oh, volatility is low, everybody's complacent, that's bad for the banks from a trading perspective. That's not ideal. Eventually, we'll see volatility, we'll see that turn back around. So again, as as we've talked about on this show before, this isn't like a product-driven company, like, say, Coke, uh, you all of a sudden see big drops in Sales decline for
1: five straight quarters.
0: Exactly. So, so the brand no longer means what, what it is. The, the taste isn't connecting with consumers. That's terrible. This, on the other hand, is, is basically like a cyclical thing. It's not like nobody's ever going to trade again. The volume's never going to come back. So, cool. Just wait. Just Thanks wait. for the explanation. You're welcome, Appreciate David. it. Third headline. We're going to Bloomberg. China Bear Stearns moment seen by B of A in Solar
1: Default. <laughs> Classic Bloomberg, yes. All right, unpack this for me, David, to start out. So there's apparently, not an expert here, apparently a solar company in China that's on the verge of missing an interest payment, and Bank of America's research is saying, hey, this could be the Bear Stearns moment of China. Everyone's been saying, this bubble's eventually got to burst. The credit bubble in China has to burst. This is the Bear Stearns moment. They're they're trying to call it in. Ultimately, Mm -hmm. it will lead to a Lehman moment, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So my question is, I don't know any... I, I'm, I'm scared of China. I'm scared of it because I don't know about it. And uh, that's a common thing. When people, don't, when people don't know something, they get scared of it. I think there ultimately will be a panic in China at some point. I mean, it's almost guaranteed when you have a, a market that size. At some point, I don't know when, but it'll happen. And when it happens, I'm not going to be able to understand how it interconnects into the U.S. banks, the U.S. market, how it affects GDP over here in Europe, all this stuff. So do I just accept that and say, hey, when the panic comes from China, I'm not going to understand it. So I just need to sit back and not freak out. Is that what I should do? Or should I try to understand it?
0: Well, two two things. First of all, I think it's interesting that the the comparison to Bear Stearns because humans are storytelling animals. And we love finding patterns. We love matching things up. So saying this is like this. We like to do that. Which will lead to this. Yeah. This and this – are usually not really that alike. And, and oftentimes, when you have that connection made, it's going to be totally wrong. Mm-hmm. J- just like a lot of people have been calling for, oh, the U.S. is just like Japan with these low interest rates, and this is what's going to happen. And that hasn't been the case. Yeah. Now, the other thing with China, I think the answer is the circle of competence issue. Um, there are a lot of things to potentially know in this world. There are a lot of things to potentially know in this world. Just in general, but then also when it comes to an invest- in investing. And... I'll talk about my, myself here, but what I do is, is I like to look at businesses, figure out what makes a business tick, figure out where its competitive advantage is, understand management, all that kind of good stuff. And there are a lot of different moving parts outside of that, so I try to focus on what I believe I can know and, and, and what I focus on, um, and leave everything else. And ho- hopefully,
1: so ha- hopefully have, have that the, work. have the stomach to say that's happening. It's not my circle of competence. I'm going to focus over here.
0: Right. It's it's kind of difficult because you don't want to totally ignore the macro picture and that sort of thing. You need to know how that connects to what you're investing in, uh, just so you can understand if China, for instance, melts down. Is that an existential threat to the company that you're investing in? Or is it the kind of thing that can create an opportunity in market turmoil? All
1: right. Well, we'll look forward to that day when China has a panic. It'll be very exciting.
0: Today's my day. Today is the Matt's stock day.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I've got a stock to present. I didn't tell you it up front. I meant to have a picture, and the picture on the screen right now would be that of a duck. Mm. Why is that? You like ducks? Not re- I'm, not really, I'm not really that big of a fan of ducks, but yes, it is Aflac. Aflac is, is my stock. So uh, taking a closer look at Aflac, I think right off the top one of the things that, that we always want to look for is competitive position, competitive moat, right? Yeah. So Aflac within the um, – m- most of its income comes from Japan. It, it provides supplemental insurance. It's a, a pretty good um, universal health plan in Japan. But Aflac provides coverage and, and policies that cover over and above that. does the same thing in the U.S. We know it more – for the U.S. Uh, supplemental coverage. If you get hurt and miss work, mm-hmm. there's Aflac. There's the duck. Um, but but that's that's a smaller part of its business. I think it's in very, very rough numbers, 75-25 kind okay. of split between the two. Um, very good competitive moat for Aflac, basically because it dominates the supplemental insurance market. Now, that's an advantage, that's also a challenge for AFLAC, because the supplemental insurance market isn't as big as, say, the auto market, or the life market, or the the regular health market uh, here in the US. So in order to grow, it has to uh, continue to hold on to the market share that it has in that market, but also continue to develop the market, particularly here in the US. It has to uh, develop develop that market, kind of build it out. Part of the competitive position of AFLAC as well is its distribution network tens of thousands of relationships with brokers, uh, with agencies on work sites, both in Japan and here in the U.S. In Japan, they've they've recently expanded out. They work with banks um, to offer their products. That is a huge advantage over any sort of upstart, anybody that wants to come in and compete with them. Uh, Outside of supplemental insurance, Aflac has also expanded out into some other products, um, some more standard life products, for instance. This is this is good and bad. Uh, the, the good is that it gets Aflac out into a, a bigger market, a new market uh where it can expand and the brand that it's already created in both Japan and the US given an easy entry into cu- customers minds. They already know Aflac even if they don't use the supplemental insurance. I don't but but I recognize the Aflac name. Mm-hmm. I would trust the Aflac name. So that that's good. But the 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 other side of that is that they're not a big player in the life market, so they're going to face a lot of competition there. Um, it's a highly competitive market, and it's, uh, it's not something that they have the history of success with. Right. Uh, good management team, maybe great management team at Aflac. Dan Amos is the CEO of the company. Owns about $250 million worth of Aflac stock, which isn't an overwhelming ownership percentage in terms of the entire company, but it's a giant company. But he cares. $250 million <laughs> A lot of money. I think uh, he's been there, I want to say, 35, 37 years. Um, so he's basically spent his career at Aflac. Uh, Chris Cloninger, the CFO, has been at Aflac since, I think, 92. Um, not the same kind of stock ownership that uh, that Amos has, but he's got a uh, few multiples of mm-hmm. his of his annual compensation.
1: So one of the things that obviously pops up mm-hmm. is we just talked about circle of competence. Right. And 75% of the business coming from Japan. Mm-hmm how do we understand kind of if we don't know what Japanese demographics look like and Mm -hmm. stuff like that or the culture of stuff like that does that is that something that we have to understand to get the Aflac business model
0: well we do kind of know I I don't think you need to be a demographic expert to understand that Japan's market is a rapidly aging one and that actually is a good market for Aflac to be in because Mm -hmm. selling supplemental insurance and and, uh, some of these supplements are, are for cancer and other things that the universal plan either doesn't cover or doesn't cover fully uh, and, and would lead customers to be out of pocket Right. Um, so I, I don't think you have to have an in-depth understanding of all of the intricacies of the, the demographics in Japan but, but I think that basic understanding of this is a good market for Affleck yeah. to be in that said I don't know one of my concerns is how much additional room for growth
1: mm-hmm.
0: particularly within that, that core supplemental market does Affleck have within Japan
1: on the, same, on the same note, you look at the U.S. business and, and, again, you sprung it on me, so I don't have the numbers in front of me. But I believe the U.S. business, the cash that they generate from that covers their dividend. So part of the worry is, all right, well, they're doing business in Japan. What about the exchange rates? They, haven't, they don't necessarily have to exchange that over in order to cut right. their dividend and stuff. But ultimately... Mm-hmm. Does that cash have to come back to the U.S. and deal with the exchange rate there? Or, does, do, you, or do you kind of just say well, the exchange rate is what it is, you've got to focus on the business? Does, does
0: it have to come back? I, no, not really.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, be, because, I mean, technically what you can do is you can keep the cash there in the, in the Japanese arm, the Japanese business, and you can invest that in securities over there and continue to earn money uh, to, to grow the company, grow the business, grow the net worth. As far as the exchange rates go, that is not something that I tend to worry about. Exchange rates can punish you when when it moves against you, but exchange rates can just as well be a benefit uh, when they move in your favor. I I think over time, you kind of look at the ups and downs of it and expect it to kind of even out, particularly when you're talking about an exchange rate versus Japan and the USA. I mean, if we're talking about U.S. versus Venezuela— I might have some more concerns, um, but but U.S. Japan exchange rates, I, I don't lose sleep over that. All right. As fi- uh, finishing off, uh, as far as valuation goes, um, Affleck's trading about two times book value right now. I think that's a pretty attractive valuation given that uh, that the company returns uh, yeah. as about tw- low twenty, low twenty percent returns on equity. Uh, I think probably two point five times book to maybe even. Closer to three times book would be a fairish price for Aflac. So I think you've got a lot of room here for, for error, a lot of room for the company not to fully deliver uh, and still do pretty you've well. You've got the dividend as well. You've got the dividend. It is a dividend aristocrat, uh, this stock, which means that it has p- not only paid a dividend for the past 20 years but grown that dividend That's the 20 years. That is optimal. All right. Mailbag, we've got an email address. It's wtmi com. You can send us emails, and please do. Yes. We like to get emails. Uh, Email today is from George Bloom, who I believe you told me is a Motley Fool member. Yes. That's great. we love to hear that. George Bloom. uh, George writes, when is the date Bank of America will announce the new dividend rate? What are the top four areas that Bank of America makes its money? And where is the best area for Bank of America growth potential? First one's an easy answer. March 14th is when the CCAR results are announced. Or is it March 26th?
1: You got March 26th? I think the stress test... You get the stress test results, then the C CCAR, which will be the formal, whether the dividend was thumbs up, thumbs down.
0: I thought I saw 14th. Anyway, okay, so... I think it's the 26th. Mid to I to right We'll say mid to late March. This month. I'll double check it. Yes, this month, uh, the, the results from the CCAR will come out, and the Fed will basically say, yes, we like your capital plan, you can move ahead, or no, we do not. That, however, does not guarantee that Bank of America's dividend will go up. It's only if Bank of America actually requests
1: an increase in the dividend. Yes. Top four area that areas the Bank of America makes money we got a graphic here if he's oh. listening we can mm-hmm. we can just read, read it, through it. Uh, so forty this is um, was for net income of the big four that we'll call Bank of America's forty one percent was from consumer banking thirty one percent global banking so that's investment banking corporate banking commercial banking then we've got eighteen percent from wealth management that's Merrill Lynch ten percent from global markets that's uh kind of the fixed income equity trading um, etc so those are the big four areas in terms of where's the best growth potential I'm going to say it's not any of those four and it is the consumer real estate portion of the business here that has mm-hmm. just been a sinkhole for Bank of America the last couple of years in That's 2013 true. the consumer real estate segment lost over 5 billion dollars so overall net income of the company was 11 billion mm-hmm. so if they would have just made zero dollars on that not a loss but zero net income would have been 50% higher. So maybe not explosive growth, but just getting back to break even, which may not happen in the next year or so, but slowly, if they can kind of stop the losses from uh, consumer real estate and get that back to break even and ultimately make a profit on that business, that's where the biggest growth I, is I, I
0: I like that answer. Uh, I'm gonna, we'll go with that one as the, as the real one. I'll go a little counterintuitive as an add-on. Growth through cutting. Uh, there's been so much talk about, oh, the, the, the bank's... Aren't growing right now. All they're doing is cutting costs. That's no good. That is good. Yeah. That's good, especially at Bank of America, where the, the, cost, uh, the cost base is just too high. Oh, yeah. Uh, the rent is too damn high at Bank of America. <laughs> as they say. As they say. Um, so I think one of the greatest growth opportunities for Bank of America is in cutting costs. Let's get to the game for today. We've got a little fool in the blank. And this is a game where we have a blank, and we fool that in. Let's do it. Which is just like <laughs> filling it in, only cooler. First one, blank percent is the highest percentage of my portfolio that I'd consider having in
1: one stock. David? I'm going to go with 35% on this one.
0: 35?
1: Yeah, 35%. And I don't have 35% of my portfolio in one stock now, but I can envision that happening. So I'm going to go with 35 What about you?
0: That's impressive. Now, sorry, when you talk about your portfolio, is this everything? Does that include your retirement assets as well? Sure. Yeah. That's bold, man. I'm a bold man. I have, I, have, I have a lot of respect for that. I would go. I would go ten percent right okay. now. Ten percent. I, I would have upwards of ten percent
1: in one stock. All right. Second scenario. Blank is one new thing I learned from this year's Berkshire Hathaway letter slash annual report.
0: I learned just how positive Warren Buffett is on Bank of America. Mm. That that surprised me. I, I got to say. Obviously, he he thinks not terribly of Bank of America because Berkshire made the big uh, preferred stock investment. Uh, but he, he he talked about Bank of America in pretty glowing terms in the letter.
1: And Without reading too much into his paragraph, it sounds like even after they kind of convert the preferreds, they're going to hold on. Dirk, yeah, it they're keeping keep in that like, yeah. position. All right. I'm going to go with, it's not really anything new, but reinforce that Buffett thinks... So you're not that, answering the question. No. <laughs> okay. We always think Buffett thinks in decades. He thinks in generations. And when he was talking about Mid America and the energy business, it was incredible. He was talking about this sustaining for the next hundred years. I mean, yeah. Buffett's it, it could be around for a while, but he's not going to be around for a hundred more okay. years. And he's talking about sustainability of these businesses and the amount of capital they can generate. So
0: unless he knows something we don't know about he's, extending life, he's got day. the money to do
1: it. So maybe. All right, third and final fool in the
0: blank. Blank is one foreign bank I'd like to learn more about. David. Fool in that blank.
1: Going with HDFC Bank. This is oh, India's yeah. fifth largest bank. Number one by market cap, though. Very profitable. Uh, return on assets around 1.8%. Pretty solid. This is one of the top holdings in the Motley Fool's mutual fund. Uh, kind of the I think it's the Explorer Fund? Yep. Voyager Fund? Oh, Something vo- like Voyager. Yeah. Voyage Fund. Uh, one of the top holdings there, so it's on my radar. Motley Fool mutual funds. Love yep. it.
0: Um, Santander. Uh, Banco Santander is the top foreign bank that I'd like to learn more about. I think there's, a, there's an interesting differentiated strategy here in terms of how Santander builds up businesses, spins them off. Uh, it's also in a lot of the regions of the world that I'm interested in. I know you're scared to death, scared to death of emerging markets. Santander is not. I am not. So I'm interested in, in learning more about that
1: one. All right. Finishing off in the sphere, David, what is the first tweet. The first tweet is from Jason Voss. He says, Remember your underwriting, folks. Lenders race to join subprime car loan boom. Subprime is back. You Indeed. happy? You love subprime. <laughs> I don't love subprime. What makes you think I love subprime? Someone said, We don't like to call it subprime in there. We like to call it emerging prime. Near prime.
0: Near prime is another one. I, I, think, that's what lendi- I think that's what lending club calls subprime, near yeah. prime. Yeah. Uh, call it more or less prime. Th- look, Every segment of the market needs lending. And there are a lot of people that end up in that subprime slice because of unfortunate circumstances. And it's, it's suboptimal, subprime, suboptimal, mm-hmm. you like that? It's suboptimal if, if, if that group can't have access to any lending. It's going to be expensive. Um, and from a, from a lender's perspective, get good interest rates. Yep. But
1: as the tweet said... Gotta remember the underwriting. Subprime, not evil by nature. Nice,
0: not, not evil. Everyone by nature. thinks it that, is. That but would it's be, not. That would be a good slogan.
1: Yeah. Subprime, not. I don't know if they don't have nature. evil in their
0: slogan, but maybe. No, no, I, I think that's good. You could be. You could be a marketer. Second tweet. We've got Rand Getlin saying Newsweek tracked down the founder of Bitcoin. The truth about who he is is stranger than fiction. David, have you read this story yet? I pulled I it up on my computer, it. but it's, I haven't had long. a chance to. What, what do you think?
1: This, do you think this is legit?: 64-year-old uh, Japanese-American man living in California. History is very, very, very vague. Sounds like he's worked for some government organizations, some okay. secret stuff going on, but apparently it's him. And his, his real name is kind of this. People thought it was a pseudonym for some. So he, so he hid out by using his actual. Well, he name. changed his name, but the, the Newsweek found kind of like the database of people's actual names, tracked him down. Pretty weird story.
0: Worth, uh, usually don't want to direct people away from going to fool.com. But probably worth checking if you're interested in, in, in Bitcoin, checking out that Newsweek
1: story. Thirteen. Final tweet. Final tweet. Going over to Animal Facts. It says, <laughs> reindeer were the first animals to be domesticated starting about 14,000 years ago by paleolithic hunter-slash-gatherers. When That's are amazing. you buying your first domestic reindeer? That's where, I know your apartment you allows keep, them.
0: I have 500 and... 575 square feet in my apartment, there is no room for... Rain- Unless it's like a... Oh, could you imagine
1: how cute a miniature reindeer would be? That they? would be cool. That would be really cool. They make cool. mini Christmas trees. Why not mini reindeers? <laughs> they make... They could, <laughs> it could be what like, like a toy, like a toy poodle. Toy reindeer. There you go.
0: I would, I would be down... I, I'm not going to say I'm going to be down for that because it probably exists, and then I'm going to ha- have to sign myself up for something there crazy like that. What is, the, what is the one animal you wish were domesticated? Tiger, for sure. <laughs> would you, if tigers were domesticated, would you go out and get one? If what? I had a
1: bigger apartment, yeah.
0: Really? You really need a bigger apartment? They're huge. Just saying. <laughs> how, much, how much would you pay for a domesticated tiger? What is the, what is the maximum price? Dollars. That, that's it? Yeah. Are you kidding for domesticated tiger? I'm sorry. I would, pay, I I would gladly pay $10,000 for a domesticated you. tiger. All right, WTMiers watching this, how much would you pay for a domesticated tiger? Or what animal do you wish was domesticated? Uh, you can find us on iTunes. Please go to iTunes. Give us a rating. Let everybody else know why this is a great show to tune into. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This is David Hansen. We'll see you tomorrow.
1: People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.